0: Welcome to Witchlit, a place to talk about the craft of writing and writing the craft. I'm your host, Victoria Rashke, author, publisher, witch, and nosy Scorpio. Witchlit is brought to you by Thousand Bolt Press, a family-owned independent publisher established to produce the books we want to see in the world. Titles including Changing Past by Yvonne A. Conjuring the Commonplace by Lane Fuller and Corey Thomas Hutchison, And my latest book, Verona Green, can be purchased directly from thousandvoltpress.com or wherever you buy books. Ashley Levy is one of the world's top crystal healing experts and educators and author of Crystals for Energy Healing and Cosmic Crystals. Ashley's passion for crystal healing drives her role as founder and educational director of the Love and Light School of Crystal Therapy. Ashley has created dozens of award-winning online courses that are fun, educational, and life-transforming. The Love and Light School has quickly grown into a thriving international community. Ashley Levy, welcome to Witchlet.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to come talk about books
0: and all things witchy. Awesome. Um, So I enjoy the book and we have lots to talk about. But our first question for everyone on the show is, especially like in this age of social media and video, why still write? Why still write books?
1: Yeah, you know... This is like a question I, I struggle with. Honestly, I think about a lot. Um, if you you know, had told me that I would be a published author when I was a kid growing up, I would have said no way. Uh, writing was not something I enjoyed. It always felt like a chore. it always felt like something that was so forced. Um, and I think it, it really wasn't until I started writing for myself that I found some of the joy that can be found in writing, mm-hmm. some of the healing that can be found in reading, some of the, um, the just the way that writing can hold you. Mm-hmm. I mean, I really, when I write, I feel held. I feel held by the universe. I feel um all parts of me honored. I feel my grief. I feel my joy. And it has really become a way for me to process, uh, where I'm at in terms of my personal writing, but also to document a lot of the things that I'm doing along the way on, you know, whatever journey I'm taking, whether that's, you know, pursuing a deeper connection with spirit or, um, trying to just find that place of wholeness within myself. Mm-hmm. It, it has become such an important part of my practice and, I often find when I'm writing, then I feel so inspired to share because it's been such a transformational process for me. I feel like, oh my gosh, like if this could get me through whatever it got me through, then I want to share it with others. I, I want to, you know, offer them just a little bit of
0: what I experienced and hope they can take that and make it their own. Yeah. Oh, I love that. It's that's such a beautiful sentiment to you. Like, I think, um, I think for me, one of the things that happened and, and maybe this is your experience or you looked into this from the beginning. Um, but I always kind of had this bucket that my writing was separate from my spiritual practice. I don't know why, like, I think part of it is that like, you know, academic approach. Cause I, you know, I did creative writing in college and I think there was this, this academic bubble around it. And then like sometime in my, early forties. Like I just, it popped and it was like, Oh no, this is, this is who you are as a person. This is not just this separate vocation kind of thing.
1: I do know what you mean. Cause I think we're, you know, whether it's because of academia or because of just societal views on, you know, that the writing is a job and that sort mm-hmm. of thing. We do sometimes feel like it is separate from our spiritual practice, but I mean, truly, you put so much of yourself into your writing and into the words that you share. And I feel like that is what makes it such a deep spiritual experience because you have to get sort of really honest with yourself yeah. and really honest about your practice. And it just becomes something um, that's, you know, so much deeper than
0: just like that occupational piece. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, so I'm curious, like how, how that your writing evolved for you, like from, you know, so like writing for yourself and then now you've published two books and I assume all of your classes involve a lot of writing too. So like, what is, what is, what did that journey look like? And kind of where are you now? I guess.
1: Yeah. I, you know, I'll be honest. if, If you'd asked me this question, like five years ago, I, I would have thought that it hadn't changed much over the years. Mm -hmm. Um, But I was just talking to a really good friend of mine uh, who you've actually had on the show as a guest before, Nicholas Pearson. And we were both kind of talking about, wow, it's so interesting to look back on your old writing and see how you've grown as a writer, see that journey. And when I look back at some of that old writing I can tell that I was writing the way I thought I was supposed to be writing. Mm -hmm. I was writing uh, the way that I thought people in my niche wrote about crystals. I was writing um, in a way that I think really mirrored a lot of the language that was used in that niche, mirrored a lot of the concepts and ideas that was used. And, you know, even though I had been practicing with crystals for many years before that and had been teaching for some time, it, it really had this specific quality that was like influenced by me, mm-hmm. but it wasn't fully me yet. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah, no, totally makes sense. Yeah. yeah. And I feel like just in the past couple of years, I've really been able to sort of like move past that and into something that feels more authentic to myself. Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of that has come from honoring my process of writing. I'm neurodivergent. I have ADHD. It can be a superpower for me, but it can also be a huge obstacle and challenge at times. And I think especially when I'm trying to like force something when I'm not in that hyper focus, where I feel excited and uh, passionate and enthusiastic about it, that's where my writing doesn't sound like me because it's almost like coming from this part of my brain that is going through the motions instead of being really in it and present during the process. Um, So I think also just becoming aware of my own needs as a writer and learning how to work with that and honor that has
0: helped that process, uh, you know, sort of shape up to what it is now. Was interesting too, because I, I, for me, like, I feel like as my idea about why I was writing changed, like my practice, my personal practice changed around writing, and my writing also deepened at the same time, and like my thoughts about things evolved. All like it was all one wave of stuff. Was that true for
1: you too? Yeah, it's so deeply interconnected. I mean, there's because there's there's no separating the writer from the writing, you know? So as we go through life and have new experiences and um, kind of learn to, whether consciously or not, sort of apply that new knowledge, those new experiences Mm -hmm. to the way that we show up in our writing, it it does definitely have a big impact, I think. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. And we talked a little bit before about the book that I read, the Cosmic Crystals book, And just kind of like some practices in that, that you said you had kind of left in the past as you changed and grown. I just want to give you an opportunity to talk about that. And again, kind of like we talked about before, I just think it's so important for people to hear that, you know, that a, we give ourselves grace to change and that we give each, each other grace to change.
1: Yeah, I really appreciate the opportunity to kind of address this, um, So like in in the classes that I teach, my students and I have conversations about this, you know, every single month during our live calls and stuff like that. And it's something that um, I don't really often get the chance to address really publicly. So just thanks for that first and foremost. (laughs) Um, Yeah, we were talking a little bit about how the book talks about the practice of smudging, which obviously is culturally appropriative, but I'll be 100% like just, real and transparent and say, you know, when this book was published, which was 2019, which means I had done a large part of the uh, writing for it, probably in 2018. Um, I was ignorantly unaware of, of the issue of cultural appropriation, not just with The concept of smudging, but with so many things. I was not steeped at all or well versed at all in anti racism work, um, which is something that I've been doing deeply for a number of years now. And obviously, just to, you know, it goes without saying, smudging is no longer a part of my personal spiritual practice. Um, It's something that I actively try and discuss with, you know, people who do contact me about the book or, uh, students in my classes, and not to be the the figure of authority on it by any means, but to just share my personal journey in sort of trying to undo some of that harm um, that was caused by, by not just that practice, but honestly, by so many things that show up in the wellness space. And being a white woman in the wellness space, um, I think there is so much privilege and power and in a lot of ways, insulation from the very difficult reality that is imposed upon people of color um, here in the United States and abroad, Mm
0: -hmm. Black
1: folks, Indigenous folks, and other people of color in general. And I think it is... in in some ways you know embarrassing to say out loud that i ha- literally had no awareness of so many of these issues but it's also the truth and I, the thing that's embarrassing about it is i had every opportunity to learn and never stepped into that world because mm-hmm. i i don't know what it is i don't know if i felt like i didn't have to if it wasn't my place whatever it, that, those are so questions i'm working on answering and I think a lot of work into, uh, or a lot of steps into this anti-racist journey and anti-oppression journey in general. Um, those are things that I'm still, I'm still reconciling. I'm still asking myself those questions because, as we were talking about before, that work doesn't stop. And mm-hmm. so, you know, it's hard to have a, a book out there that, in some ways. I am really proud of, and I feel really good about, and was such a big piece of me, and in other ways, um, has hurts attached to it, you know, and not mm-hmm. just my hurts, they, they are collective hurts, they are hurts of of people of color who have suffered because of the harm done by cultural appropriation, which mm-hmm. of which I was very much a part, and I'm still a part, and I'm still working to unravel, so, you know, that's a big change in the way that I sort of approach things. Um, and so it really took a lot of figuring out, you know, what is, what are the steps to take here to try mm-hmm. and remediate some of this harm? I can't undo it. I can't erase it. But what can I do? What is in my power to do going forward? So one of my very first steps was reaching out to my publisher and talking about what happens if and when this book goes for a reprint. You know, is there a possibility to update chapters of the book, sections of the book um, Mm -hmm. that will take out some of this harmful information, but not just remove it and pretend it didn't exist, but to talk about why that change has happened. And I think that was a really important part of the piece for me. And I wouldn't have even honestly thought to consider that except I worked with an amazing anti-racism educator and mentor, uh, Constanza Eliana Chinea of Embody Inclusivity. And I have learned so much from her over the past few years. And um, she has been such a, a helpful person to talk to and process some of this with and figure out what is the path that moves us closer toward harm reduction and what is the path that moves us closer to collective liberation and Mm -hmm. it I am so grateful because I think without the guidance of a person of color I couldn't even have seen the things that I was missing and um yeah
0: I hope that answers the question but (laughs) no it does and I think about you know it just made me think some about my own journey with that I am I mean, I think it's easy to walk into the kind of like the, the kind of new agey wellness spiritual space. And it, it's, you know, it is love and light, you know, like, like your school name and it is this like place. And then when you start to really look at it, when you do kind of have that realization that, oh, there's some, there's some not great stuff too it It's hard. I mean, I walked, that was the door I walked into, I guess the occult space was through was through that kind of new age approach and um, I'm not thinking about the cultural theft and appropriation that had happened for a lot of that until later. And um, my husband, and I've said this on the podcast and I try not to make it a drinking game, but my husband is from Trinidad. We had a conversation very early in our relationship and he said, you know, being in an interracial relationship is a public act basically and are you ready for that? And at the time I was like, yeah, sure. Dear listener, I did not really know <laughs> what that was going to be. And you know, one of the things that we've really discussed is like it's not his job as my husband to educate me on this. It's my job to educate me on this. And thankfully, you know, we have very frank open conversations about everything including, you know, anti-racism and all of this stuff, but yeah, it's it, the journey never ends. And you and it is embarrassing when you realize like when you've said things either you learn later, like the harm that that caused or, and you're just like, I, but again, I think, you know, a shutting down and saying, you know, I don't want to deal with the uncomfortableness. I don't want to deal with the embarrassment. Isn't really an option. So it is like being open and public about it. And, and just, like you said, continuing the journey because I'll be doing this work the rest of my life. Hopefully. I mean, that's the goal, right? Is that you just continue, we just continue to move toward a collective liberation. Like to me, that is like, I really, in my heart, believe we're not free until we're all free. And that's all of our work. hundred
1: percent. And it, you know, it really is.
0: It's so interesting looking back
1: and, and asking some of those questions, like, you know, how, how did this come about? And when I think back to my experience, I very much exactly can relate to what you're saying came in through that sort of like new age metaphysical sort of door into the wellness space. And was it a time in my life where I was really seeking that connection with spirit, really looking for answers to big questions that I had, And was learning a lot that was in many ways serving me very well, was supporting me. But that doesn't mean that it wasn't at the same time harmful to other people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I think like, how did I miss this? How did I not know? How was I so completely unaware? Well, if I'm like looking at things through the lens that I have now, all of my teachers were white folks. Uh, a majority, if not all the books I was reading were written by white folks. And, you know, it's because of these systemic issues that it is so easy for white people of privilege to be able to close ourselves off from the reality of what's happening in the world. And, you know, it, it, it is embarrassing, but it, but sitting in that discomfort and finding ways to work through that discomfort so that we can do better is so important. And, you know, I have days where I want to sort of shut down and not think about things or not not do that work, but reminding myself that I I personally do have the privilege to indulge in that and indulge that part of myself if I want to, but that people of color do not have that privilege. And so... Mm-hmm reminding myself that that is part of the work as a white person is, is to sort of fight against that urge to be complacent. Um, yeah. So thanks for just having a really open conversation about that, because I think it's so, it's so easy to fall into. And a a lot of folks are, I think, you know, having these conversations, a lot of white folks, I should say, are having these conversations more and more, Mm -hmm. but we need to keep having them. I mean, you keep having them over
0: and over. Yeah. It's, I mean, I think there's a lot of folks who are like, oh, we had this conversation around the George Floyd uprising and then everybody kind of went back to sleep. And I was like, yeah. And, you know, I think if you, if you look at things only from an online perspective, I think there was this like social media. I have to be, and I mean, I, I posted stuff too. Like, I'm not going to pretend like I didn't participate in that, but it's um, that performative work is not as important to me as the actual work. And I think yeah. that's hard. And I think about like, especially with like social media, it's very easy to be performative and not really do the work. And I think it's a trap that it's real easy to fall into. Even if you are doing the work or trying to do the work that, Oh, you know, my post and you know, you're like, is that really doing anything? Like, I don't know. And I think when you have a public platform, I mean you are a published author, you have a podcast too, you know, like there's also this call to say, well, why aren't you speaking on this? And I'm like, because I'm not a voice that you need to hear speak about this. That's kind of and and yet there is this space that we feel like we we are we're you know, my podcast is not like a massive listenership podcast. My platform is, you know, like a half inch above the ground. But people still ask. And I'm like, i nothing I say is going to contribute to the discourse on this. I'm learning as things are happening. I can tell you that I think violence against non-combatants is not good. I can you know, I can tell you these things that I have, but I can't talk about the politics of the situation because I'm not the voice you need to listen to about it.
1: <laughs> you know what? I, I love that you said that. there um black liturgies on Instagram recently had a post kind of saying, Sort of just this like, you know, mirroring this that sometimes, especially like as white folks, but for anyone, we need to ask ourselves if we always need to be the loudest voice in the room or if we need to be a voice in the room at all. And sometimes um, there is a place for our silence so that the voices that matter most in a given situation can rise above the noise and the chatter and the everything Um, And that, that really made such a strong impact on me hearing that. And also, you know, I, I go back to a lot of the things that I've been putting into practice the past few years. And one of, I think the, the most important things that I've learned is that this work has to be done in community Mm -hmm. and this work is not I mean, there, is cert- there are certain things, of course, that we need to be doing on the individual level, but overall, this work needs to be done in community. And coming back to that reminder, I think is so important because when, when we are doing the work only by ourselves, we miss out on so much because of our own internal biases, because of our lived experience and how that differs and varies mm-hmm. from the lived experience of the collective of humanity, and so reminding myself, like you said, that not everything has to be super public facing. We can have the things that we do personally. We can have the things that we do um, that involve our our closest relations, our friends, our family. We can do the things that involve our community members, our neighbors. Um and then there are the the public calls to action and the public mm-hmm. speaking and all of it is important but not all of it necessarily has a place in every single situation. We have right. to like right. figure out where that right time right place is and a lot of that involves some self-awareness
0: about our motivations mm-hmm. behind what behind our actions and what we're doing. Yeah. Oh, yeah, the motivations part, I think that's I mean to me that's part I mean When we talk about shadow work, to me, that's one of the things is like, you know, the shadow is not just the dark part of yourself, it's also the underpinning of the part you show. So I don't know. It's, yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot to unpack there always. And I just thank you too for being open to talk about it because I think it's just, you know, we are having this conversation publicly, right? I mean, that is part of it, but, um, but it's so important to just, I think, yes, to do it community. And part of that, you know, community is to call each other in and out about yeah. things. And um, yeah, I mean, I I don't know. I, I always hesitate to weigh into the cancel culture discussion because I think it's taken on a whole extra political level that really doesn't have anything to do with like how it impacts actual humans. Um, but you know, what I see it as like the roots of it are saying, hey, by the way, did you know that this thing you're doing is harmful? And giving someone the opportunity to correct or change direction or say, thank you. I thank you for pointing that out to me and I will work to correct that. Instead of just saying you are no longer a person to me, that's not what that's supposed to be. And And that's the part, like you just said,
1: and give them a chance to correct that. Right. Right. Like, I think, you know, and, and we could, oh my gosh, we could have such a discussion about cancel culture and, and, and the act of canceling, whatever. Mm-hmm. But it, I think, you know, and what I'm probably going to get things wrong here when I say this, but a lot of times, most of the time, you know, I think people are, are given a lot of grace and it's when that, listening reflecting and responding to correct the harm doesn't happen mm-hmm. that
0: the that the the cancel happens you know what right. I mean yeah. and if and, you're to double um, down when you're called out or if I would yeah. to double down if I get called out I mean I, I can't exclude myself from this conversation and I want to make that really clear that I do not think I am perfect in any way If you double down or I double down or you double down or whoever, then that's a whole different conversation. Like that changes the game because then that tells me that you're entrenched in that thought or that's an entrenched thought I have. And I need to examine that. Yeah. But, and I do,
1: you know, like, I'll just be vulnerable. I'll say like, you know, it's, it's a scary thing being called out. It's a scary thing. Um, because I think, you know, we're all humans mm-hmm. and sometimes we make the initial mistake, right? Whatever it was. And then we make the mistake of, of being human and reacting instead of mm-hmm. responding because right. we want to fix it or we want to defend ourselves or we want to whatever, or talk about our intentions instead of our impact, like all those things. Right. And I think that on the one hand, that's very human, but and, and I'm, you know, I know I have done this in my life. I a hundred percent know mm-hmm. that I've oh, done yeah, this. Me too. But also like, I think that is a big part of this work is trying to learn how to respond rather mm-hmm. than react and how to take that accountability and accountability looks different to everyone. It, you know, it feels different to everyone especially based on who has been impacted and how they've been impacted and what harm has been caused and, and what you can do to repair or reduce that harm going forward. Um, But I think that there is, you know, like you said, such an opportunity to give people grace to try and correct those mistakes um, and learn from them. And, and, not make those mistakes again I think Mm -hmm. that's what's extra hard too when we see people make those same mistakes over and over and over Mm -hmm. again like myself included you know like it's something that um I think I I often like find myself reflecting on or -hmm. thinking about you know oh how might I respond in this situation and I think we can't know until we're in it. And, um, I, I think one of the the hardest things is in some ways sort of like finding the way to really take that accountability Mm -hmm. to really stand up and, and try and reduce that harm and try and, and remedy the situation as best you can. Um, because the thing is you can, you can never make it go away. You know, you can never yeah. necessarily
0: take it back. And, and that gets, that gets hard.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. I think you're right. I think it is a human response. I, we, you know, I think especially in Western culture, like critique and criticism becomes so personal yeah. and not like, I think that's why you, what you said about it being in community is so important as someone who cares enough about you to call out what you've done, like that's an act of love to do that because it is labor on their part. It's emotional pain on their part to call you out and say, Hey, by the way, did you know you did this thing? That's a, you know, confrontation is hard for everyone. And I think to, to look at it as an act of love of ourselves and our community and to not make it we're so individualistic in the West, especially. And I think it's, to look at it in this more like community, collective way, kind of softens that a little bit. If you can think of, I mean, in the moment, I'm going to say in the moment, it's hard to do, but, you know, in reflection to look at it, like you said, in community, in this collective progress, that's really, I think a way to, to maybe not be so hard on ourselves because we can't change the fact that we were born into a culture and we were acculturated in this culture. And we have to just work through that and work past those things. Okay. Out of
1: everything we've talked about so far today, this is going to be one of those things that sticks with me for a really long time, because that was so beautiful that like a call out or a call in is an act of love and, and thinking about, yeah, the, also the impact on that person who's having that conversation or those community members who are having that conversation. I like, I feel that in my bones. Like that is, mm-hmm.
0: that is an ultimate act of love. It's an act of kindness, really. Mm-hmm. Because if you, if you don't matter to that person and the, the shitty thing you did is just another shitty thing they have to deal with in their day, you're not worth having that conversation with True. to them, you know, to that person. Or So yeah, like I, it really shifted my focus on it. And I mean, honestly, I have my husband to thank for that. Like that shift in, I cannot say I came to this on my own. Like I, I have him to thank for, kind of that reflection on that. That's beautiful. Awesome. Oh, Ashley. <laughs> I feel like we went way deeper than I thought we were gonna go, and I just, I really appreciate your candor and your openness. So thank you for that. Yeah, I, I'm really grateful for this conversation. Yeah. Um, I do. It feels weird. I want to kind of wrap it back around to writing. And kind of like how, like, you know, I think it does, you know, when your lenses shift, everything shifts. So like for you, like in your writing process now, like how, like, I mean, are you working on another book? Like what are, you know, how are you bringing that, I guess, into fruition? And I know you're teaching a lot, so I I know it's showing up in that way too.
1: Yeah. So this is like a painful subject, but again, like full transparency. I feel I feel like, I don't know, you've created such a, a safe space for conversation here. So um, I am not currently writing another book. Um, after I wrote the last book and after the pandemic started, I honestly went through probably the deepest depression of my life. Um, and I have not really spoken openly or publicly mm-hmm. about this very much. And not because I don't think that we should share it because, but because I was so deep in it, I couldn't talk about it. I just yeah. didn't have the emotional strength. <laughs> um, yeah. And it was really difficult. Um, it went on for a couple years and it honestly truly wasn't until the beginning of this year in 2023 um, obviously, because we're recording in October, <laughs> that I started to feel more like myself again. Mm-hmm. And it probably wasn't until the summer, early summer of this year that I really did feel like myself again, yeah, And, you know, I know we all go through times where we're struggling, where things are difficult, where things ebb and flow. But I felt like I could barely do the things I needed to do. In a day, let alone the thought of something as big as a book, because I will say, although I enjoy the writing process, it is also a huge challenge for me.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um I mean, it's not easy, right? I mean, I'm, I'm sure most people would agree it's not not yeah. easy for the most part. There, you know, there are those times where it feels like everything is flowing and you're so in it, and you know, you just are feeling it. and it it does feel kind of easy in those moments. But overall, The process, at least for me, has has always been uh, rather difficult and trying to like organize my thoughts during that time just couldn't have happened for me. And it's just been over the past few months that I've been thinking that I have another book in me. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's really been born out of, you know, at least this idea has been born out of the things that felt grounding and healing for me during that really rough time in my life, uh, which for me was a seasonal practice of connecting with the land, mm-hmm. uh, um, being really tapped into the slowness of the seasons and honoring what each season brought. Where I live here in Madison, Wisconsin, we have a very clear four seasons. Mm-hmm. Of which uh winter makes up about half of the year. <laughs> yeah. Um but I feel the need to start to go back through my journals and go back through um, you know, some of the things that were really healing for me and and start to organize my thoughts around that time as as much to document some of those practices Mm -hmm. that really served me well as to reflect on what that time in my life was like. And I can feel that if this, if this does sort of turn into a book about, you know, working with crystals for seasonal practice, Mm -hmm. um, I feel like it will be a much more personal, much more intimate book. My, my last two books have been a bit more how to, mm-hmm. in, in a lot of ways, you know, there, there are ideas for rituals and things that were compiled from journals and little scraps of paper and things that I had done in my own practice. But I feel like this is more about the journey of the year and mm-hmm. looking at, you know, each year in our life and how it's, even though it's a year, it's sort of a moment in time. Yeah. Um and so i feel like there's there's something there and i really hope to start that process soon i i'm feeling it out and uh trying to be gentle with myself through that process uh which is different for me i think mm-hmm. like you were talking about earlier in the show you know there was a time where like writing was very much like more academic or tied to a career or it was a specific thing and i think i don't want to push Um, even though I feel this book in me, I feel like I want to share it. I don't want to rush into a commitment with capitalism at the moment. Yeah,
0: no, I get that a lot. Oh, I get that on a deep level. Um, yeah, I think, you know, and it has come up with other folks on the show previously about like the, like the core pandemic time, like early on, just like, you know, there was a reason you couldn't get a therapist. (laughs) Like everybody was dealing with so much stuff. And for some people that was a really rich time because they stepped out of time and kind of like reset, but it was hard for me. Like I felt so disconnected from everything and it just like creativity. Like in the beginning, I kind of felt ramped up. Like, Oh, we have this time and this opportunity and you were seeing people you know, there are dolphins in the canals in Venice, you know, like things seemed like, even though it was horrible, what was going on, that we were also seeing that there was another way possible. And then as things kind of got back to normal, that was actually a harder time for me to go, but we're wasting this opportunity to really, really step back and look at what works for us and what doesn't. And I think that, um, I mean, that was, to you know burn the engines of capitalism right is to get things back to normal right which wasn't great i mean none of us really were like thrive i mean i say none of us obviously people thrive in all environments i was not thriving and i think a lot of people weren't thriving in this kind of rat race approach to things and it happened i think even when you know it's interesting to me like in the in the cult space or the wellness space and when you step into the public part of it or you step into the business part of it it can really change your relationship with your own practice in a way that i think can be really negative um like it just again it it takes on this performative aspect right and that's part of this um I can't remember if this is in the recording I I had a an interview recently but I think it was when we were talking after so I think it's not in the recording but I had seen somewhere that um basically social media turns all of our phones into narcissist's mirror wow yeah and I and it struck me so hard and I really wish I could remember where I saw it because I need to credit the person who said it but it's um like it's so hard to step away from that and because we were also isolated. Online became such a a lifeline for people to be connected. So, I mean, I think so many people's creativity, like writing, artists, like everybody, like it, it's weird. Like either it was like the most fertile time in their creative life, or things just shut down.
1: You know what? I totally know what you're talking about because I feel like those first couple months, even though it was scary, it was horrible. People were sick. People were dying. It was it was awful. At the same time. There was a weird thing happening, at least here in the United States. I know it was very different elsewhere, Mm -hmm. but we had stimulus checks, you know, for part of that. Um, Some people had paid leave. A lot of people did not, right? Mm -hmm. There are a lot of working class people left without any source of income, which was really scary. Mm -hmm. Um, But a lot of people were, you know, their places of business were shut down and maybe they were eligible for unemployment benefits or whatever. So simultaneously, as all this horrible stuff was happening in the earth, there was also this weird mini renaissance happening Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. And I feel like it reminds me of that meme that's like so popular. And it's, I'm going to really badly paraphrase it, but it's something like, um, you know, about like how a lot of like wealthy people's children go on to have careers in the arts, like writing or painting or making music or whatever. Mm-hmm. And like, how nice would it be if we could all just kind of follow our creative passion and do the thing that we felt so inspired by. And I feel like for that little blip in time, a lot of people did that. A lot of people- I saw a glimpse of,
0: of it, what it could yes, look like. Yeah.
1: yeah. They sort of, they got to stick a toe in at mm-hmm. least. And there were some really beautiful things being created out of that time. And, you know, some of them were rooted in pain and grief, and some of them were able to finally be expressed because people had a little bit of space, just Mm -hmm. like a tiny bit of space. Yeah, And it's so weird to think about that time when, you know, there were such varied lived experiences for people, Um, but then I immediately like very much like what you said, as, as things started to open back up and there was this like pursuit and rush to kind of fuel commerce again. And, you know, quote unquote, get back to normal. It left me with such a deep sadness. And, um, you know, I work from home, which in so many ways is a huge privilege and especially was at that time. Uh, and you know, I had the privilege of being relatively safe and things like that. Um, but it was also so isolating. and I mm-hmm. think even as things started to open back up, I really I didn't, I don't know what your experience was like, but I was very cautious for a long time. Uh, mm-hmm. even at I own a crystal shop here in Madison, and we did not open to the public until. I think it was October of 2021 mm-hmm. and even then we were open by appointment only. And I don't think we reopened our store until July of 22. Yeah. It was a long, long time and all of the other businesses up and down, like our downtown where we are, you know, we're all open, mm-hmm. um, but it was like a collective decision that that we made as a team on when we felt safe and when we didn't. And I said, you know what, we will keep doing what we want to do uh, with no pressure until we all agree that, you know, mm-hmm. we feel safe or not. And, you know, it's, it, it's really, I think there's something kind of heartbreaking about that experience too, of like you said, so many people got to see sort of a glimmer mm-hmm. and, um, I think of all the the books that have gone unwritten and the art that's gone uncreated because there was this push to, you know, get mm-hmm. back
0: to. Yeah. I, like I think, you know, like all the people we lost in that, you know, yeah. either you did not survive COVID or whose lives were changed forever by COVID. And like, you know, it reminds me, I know, I know it's not, I think the stark disappearance of like during the height of the AIDS epidemic when, I always think of that picture of the um, San Francisco gay men's choir. I don't know if you've seen it online where it's like four or five people in white shirts and everybody else in black shirts and the people in white shirts are the people that survived of this huge chorus of men. Um, But I think about that too. I mean, you know, knowing people who did not survive COVID and knowing people whose lives have been changed by COVID personally and just what, how their lives have shifted so much because of that. And like, it's, um, you know, it's that, uh, may you live in interesting times thing. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, but it's not fun. <laughs> so right. It's just getting through that and trying to find it. But I feel like after, I will also say I was lucky enough to find a therapist to work through some of that and stuff because it hit really hard. And I, um, being someone who's kind of a hermit anyway, that whole experience made it really easy for me to really dig in and, and kind of, even though there was isolation for safety, there was also isolation out of fear Yeah, at some point too. And so it was really, you know, I think it's a lot to work through and it affects your ability to, you know, connect to like your practice spiritually and your practice as a writer. And it's a lot. So I think, you know, I, I feel like people are talking about it, which is good. Cause I think, again, like you said, these are things that we need to share because if if like one person listens to this podcast and, and feels heard, then yay, or seen, yay. Cause you know, I just, I, I don't think we go through many things alone. Yeah. Or you at least- know, I can
1: tell you, I relate to your story so much. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was very much my experience. And in a lot of ways, my writing practice although there were gaps in time where mm-hmm. I didn't pick up a pen. <laughs> um, there were a lot of times where I really do think that my writing practice sort of saved me. And one of the things that and it wasn't, you know, writing for anyone but me. it was it was mm-hmm. mostly a journaling practice, which I really thought I had done in the past, but really what I had done in the past was like a documenting practice mm-hmm. yeah. and a journaling practice, a true like, creative, free-flowing journaling practice was so much different. And, um, you know, I'm just going to share it. So I don't know if you are familiar with Bridget's Grove, uh, but the company founder, Molly Reamer, has the most amazing journals uh, that I really connect with. They're called Mm -hmm. 30 Days of Goddess, um, but they're, you know, they're meant to be a a way to connect with goddess in your practice. And for me, that, that takes the shape of universe or mm-hmm. goddess or whatever, mm-hmm. like I'm feeling connected to at the moment, the land often, but it's just the simplest little one page journal. And it felt like no pressure. Mm-hmm. There's a little space to record like the moon phase and your mood and whatever you want. And there's a one word prompt for the day. And sometimes I would follow that prompt and be a little bit inspired by it, or it would make me reflect on my day in a different way. Mm-hmm. and sometimes. You know, I wouldn't really think about that prompt at all. But giving myself that space to just write a little bit on one page every day without the pressure to fill the page, without the pressure to have to do it every single day, mm-hmm. but knowing that that practice would be there for me whenever yeah. I needed it and being able to turn to something to make sense of everything that was going on and the things that i was feeling and and the deep grief and those feelings of isolation and all those things that was um a way of exploring writing that i truly had never done before and allowing myself space to be brutally honest about my feelings and and how i was showing up or how i was hiding because of fear. Mm -hmm. Um, So just sometimes not showing up and just getting to hold space for all of me in that practice is something that I am so grateful for in my life. And it wasn't until pretty recently that I I realized what an important part of my spiritual practice that had become. And I, you know, I have these chunks of time where I look back through my old journals and there are three months or six months without a single entry. And then there might be a flurry of things. Mm-hmm. And it, I mean, that really speaks volumes too. sometimes yeah. it's not the writing we're doing, but the writing that we're not doing that shines <laughs> yes. a little light.
0: That shines a light on what's going on. Yeah. Um, because of what you do, I I did want to ask you, because I think, you know, I, it's not an advice show necessarily. I mean, we we mostly just talk about writing and magic and witchy stuff. But um, I did want to ask you, like, what what do you recommend for writers like to have on their desk or with them, like either to open those channels when they're blocked or as a companion or like what kind of stones do you recommend to people when they ask you?
1: I love this question. This was so unexpected, but I love this. OK, so uh, I love, love, love rainbow fluorite, or really any type of fluorite. I I used to really prefer rainbow fluorite, which um, some of the most beautiful rainbow fluorite comes out of China. Um, but I've really been working with a lot of British minerals for the past two years. And the Roger Lee Mine fluorite, which is this beautiful forest green, and it has this really cool cubic structure. I love that for mental clarity. Mm-hmm. There's something about it that just helps me get more focused. I feel really inspired by it. And it's almost like, you know, how, um, like there are certain scents and fragrances that can like really trigger a memory or something like that. Like my mom always says the smell of rose reminds her of the soap in my great grandma's bathroom. So it was her grandma when she was Mm -hmm. growing up. You know, there are those little things for me, building a relationship with A really particular crystal and sort of working in community with that crystal can be really supportive the same way and just helping me shift my energy into a particular space. Mm -hmm. So, if there's something that I really need to focus on, if it's writing an article or an outline for a class or whatever it is, um, working with that Roger Lee fluorite for some clarity and some focus, I find just gets me in the space where I'm able to uh, sit down and do what I need to do. Um, but for motivation and creativity, I love Carnelian. I feel like it has this vibrant, fiery energy. Uh, it really kind of stirs up your passions and that uh, creative idea formation. Um, Mm -hmm. and although it's in my opinion, at least, or my experience, it's not so much about the creative expression it's about the like turning over and stirring up of all those things that are sort of sitting within you waiting to sort of come to the surface and sometimes that's where that fluorite comes in handy because mm-hmm. it helps me make sense of all those thoughts and all yeah. those things that i'm
0: feeling but th- that's like my favorite duo oh nice i love that i am um, before we start recording i showed ashley what's on my desk so i have this giant piece of gold tiger's eye that I love, and for me, it is kind of that clarity kind of stone. And then the other chunk I have on my desk is this piece of amazonite, because a thousand years ago, I can't even tell you who told me that amazonite was good for writers, and <laughs> I bought a piece, and so I have it on my desk.
1: So, I can see that the amazonite really does tap into that like creative expression piece and like communicating our ideas. And the golden tiger's eye definitely a great clarity stone um, and focus. It really strongly connected with the air element
0: so we have that going for it Mm -hmm. I love that combo yeah and I have so like my chart is so watery (laughs) (laughs) so I always feel like it's good to kind of help bring in some of those other elements I don't have a lot of earth in my chart so it's nice to kind of have some grounding and it's funny. I, I was telling Ashley again before recording that I never really think of myself as somebody who works with crystals a lot, but I was a rock hound as a kid. And like, I took geology in college because I didn't want to cut up frogs. Um, it was a lab science. I just fell in love. Like I just fell in love with, with geology and, and um, that. And I've always thought of, I guess it in an, in almost like a scientific way. It was interesting because in your book, you talk about I think your dad and his love of rocks, your granddad, I can't remember which one your grandpa and just kind of his love of rocks, like from the scientific point of view, like, are you know, like a rock hound kind of person. Yeah. And he was a
1: chemical engineer. So he was like into the hard science. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. And so I think it's interesting that you can approach them in different ways. And um, like, I love, you know, thinking of kind of like always rethinking like, why do I do things, you know? Yes. So
1: yeah. Like the thing that got me into rocks was like truly the um the mythology and lore and history mm-hmm. and how they had been worked with throughout history at least um, throughout written history that we know of and uh for me that like opened this whole new world into because mm-hmm. i had such a love of myth have i shouldn't say had but you know even as a as a kid had such a love of mythology and legend and lore and mm-hmm. um seeing how crystals fit into that was like a way of Connecting with them that was really concrete. Like you could, you can't reach out
0: and touch a myth, but you can reach out
1: and touch a crystal that was in a yeah. Myth. Uh,
0: it. Yeah. And it's funny, you, you brought up Nicholas earlier. When I interviewed him, we talked about the fact that we kind of forget that like everything we're surrounded with comes from the earth. Yes. Like, you know, the computer that we're using to talk to each other, our fancy podcast mics, you know, the desk I'm sitting next to, you know, all of this stuff is of the earth. And we just kind of forget about that sometimes. And I think um, as an animist, (laughs) like that's kind of important to remember that even though it is so easy to just get caught up in the day to day and kind of forget that, you know, these things have their own spirit and purpose.
1: Yeah. And finding new ways to recognize and honor that Mm -hmm. in our practice. Yeah. I love that.
0: Oh, well, we tried to keep it to an hour and I think you and I went over, but I don't care because this conversation has been great. Um, but I did, before we do our game of chance question, I did want to give you the opportunity to just plug what's coming up. Like I said, this will come out at the end of January. So let people know where to find you and what you got on offer, I guess.
1: Yeah. If you've enjoyed the conversation and you want to like chat me up with anything you want to reflect on, anything like that. I always love getting DMs on Instagram. I know not everybody likes it, but I really enjoy that conversation. So you can find me on Instagram at Love and Light School, um, and in just a couple of weeks from when this podcast is released, I'll be opening enrollment for my Crystal Healing Certification Program, which I do a couple times a year. So you can learn more specifically about the program at CrystalHealerSchool dot or if you're looking for some great free resources, I have tons of articles. And videos and podcast episodes and free classes on my website at loveandlightschool.com.
0: Awesome. Great. So, uh, all the guests and for listeners, all the guests get uh, get the questions ahead of time, but they do not get this last question because I write them for each guest. <laughs> so, um, I am going to roll a die, and depending on what I get, you'll get a question about death, sex, religion, politics, or money. So well, this lovely. Slightly- you know, dark things we're not supposed to talk about or whatever. Right. And if I roll a roll six, you get to pick which one you want. And I would say there's not really any rules to this game. So if we get a question, I'm like, no, I don't want to talk about that. We'll roll it again. <laughs> okay, let's go for it. The three, religion. Woo. So one of the things I enjoyed it in your book is you mentioned that I actually, this was in your book. It was in an interview that I read online that you had given about your family when you were younger really encouraged you to go experience a lot of different religions, to go to a temple, to go to mass, to go, you know, to do all these things and really experience that. How do you feel like that echoes in your practice today that, that having been given almost permission to explore as a kid?
1: Yeah, I think, um, it's had, it's had good and bad consequences, right? Mm-hmm. Um so I'll start with like the things that like looking through the lens I have now weren't great. I think like growing up in the time and place that I did, there wasn't a lot of context given for whether or not it may be appropriate for me to be in all of those spaces. <laughs> so <laughs> um although I think it was you know a great um there was great intention behind allowing for the kids in our family to choose a spiritual path or religious affiliation or whatever that resonated with them. And that felt like was meaningful to them. And that wasn't necessarily like pushed on us in any way. We were really encouraged to explore. Um, Obviously. Yeah. There, there are some things like that may not have been, That could have been better with more guidance. I'll put Mm -hmm. it that way. Um, Because I do think that a lot of that, you know, (laughs) eclectic, for lack of a better word, is the (laughs) word a lot of people use in the witchcraft community uh, approach to connecting with spirit um, made me feel like I had permission to draw from a lot of of places when I didn't always. Um, So that's been a big learning experience for me just over these past few years. Um, but I think in many ways, it's also the thing that I'm so grateful for is that my mom never made anything off limits in mm-hmm. terms of what was accepted by her and what would be accepted by our family. Yeah. And so even though that was so different than, you know, a lot of my friends growing up and schoolmates and things like that, um, it, it was... It, it was something that I always appreciated knowing that I had that freedom mm-hmm. uh, as a Sagittarius, that, that freedom piece <laughs> is pretty important yep. to me. So feeling like I could explore and have different experiences and and see how that fit in was really important for me. Um, and thinking about how that sort of shaped my practice now, I think in a way, even though I've I've made a lot of pit stops along the way, it has helped me find my way home. Mm-hmm. It's helped me rediscover what's important to me in my practice and and primarily, again, this connection to the land, this connection to um, to nature, to spirit, uh, and and to being in tune with this like seasonal practice and understand how I'm not separate from things yeah. outside of myself how Mm -hmm. we are the same. yeah, And that has been such a beautiful gift in my life and something that I'm really grateful for. Um, And that, you know, my mom got a lot of flack for that from grandparents and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. My mom was raised Methodist. uh, So when, you know, when we weren't, we weren't baptized, we weren't confirmed, we didn't have a regular church we went to. Um, We went to church a few times, you know, so we could have the experience, but like you mentioned, we went to Baha'i Temple, we went to synagogue, we went to Catholic Mass, we uh, went to Vedic Temple. There were just a, a lot of options. I grew up in the Chicago suburbs, mm-hmm. so we had, we had a lot of options to explore. And um, it wasn't until I was about 15 or 16, though, that I um, kind of discovered paganism and witchcraft and Explored it for a little bit and thought at that time it wasn't for me uh, and left the idea of that practice behind for a long, long, long time. And I think it wasn't until probably just four or five years ago that I really started to realize that everything that I was doing in my practice was uh, very witchcraft centric. and. it was an interesting realization because I I just really thought that that was something that wasn't for me. And then I'm like, wait, you know what, actually I think
0: it was witchcraft all along. (laughs) Yeah. It was witchcraft all
1: along. Exactly. Like it was like, you know, in Scooby-Doo when they take the mask off the villain and it's like, Hey, surprise. Like that's what was there. And it, it felt in some ways good to recognize like, what was in my heart and like sort of where my feet were planted, so to speak. Um, but in other ways, like, I still really don't like to label it. Like, would I say that I'm a witch? Like, I suppose so. Mm-hmm. I don't know. that it's like a word I, I often use to self-describe. I think it in my head, but mm-hmm. I, it's not something I, yeah. I don't know, speak out loud. And, and like, you know, I don't, is ter- In terms of like a collective umbrella under paganism, like I'm sure I fall somewhere under there, but, uh, you know, don't have like a specific way I think about it or specific way I label it. And I think a lot of that comes back to that need for a bit of freedom and a need for um, a, a sort of formless space for my practice mm-hmm. to exist in.
0: Yeah, no, well, that makes sense. And I, it's funny you say that about like identifying in your head as a witch and then not really talking about it that way. Like I yeah. did that for a long time. I mean, my reasons were a little different because I just wasn't. Um, I wasn't. I wasn't. I don't know that I was ever a hundred percent like in the broom closet. Scare quotes that people can't see. Um, but you know, I grew. I was in Tennessee. I grew up in Tennessee. I lived in Tennessee for years, and um, though there is a very rich pagan community there. A witchcraft community there, um, bless them because lifelines in so many ways, but uh, just, I was always, you know, ra- I was raised in the South. You don't want to offend people. You don't want to, you know, so it was just like always kind of kept to myself. And I won't say that it was a hundred percent moving to California and being like, oh, I can kind of, it was really more getting older yes, and just saying, you know, like what other people think about me is not as important as when I think about myself. And how I identify and what I need. And, you know, like I, I try not to like rub people's face. Although, like, it's pretty obvious on my social media and I have a podcast where I talk to people who talk about witchcraft. So, like, it's out there, you know, but I never just like threw open the doors and went, by the way, I'm a witch. <laughs> Hello. Yeah. yeah. Uh,
1: wow. I, you know what? I never thought about that piece of just aging into the comfort of it. Mm hmm but wow. Yeah, definitely that.
0: Yeah. It's been, I have to say like, um, again, a second drinking game for the show. I turned 50 last year and yes, I am obsessed with it, but not in the way that people like, I'm not like, I wasn't scared to turn 50 or sad about it. I was like kind of excited that I made it. Um, it was, uh, my sister is 10 years older than I am. And so I've always kind of had this person ahead of me, kind of trailblazing. Like, so aging has not been scary for me because I see how she handles it with such grace. And like, it's like it's just you know, here's the things. But she said like, when you hit 35, you just stop caring what people think. It took me longer than that. I mean, it clicked in a little bit at in my 30s, but it really wasn't until I was in my 40s where it was really like, is it really important? And I mean, I still have those moments where I mean, everybody wants to be liked. I mean, I'm not gonna say I have turned into like. A true bug witch and I have no shits to give about what anybody thinks about me. But I it's less important as long as I'm in integrity with myself. Yes. So, yeah. Wow. Awesome.
1: It has been so great talking to you today, getting to know you a little bit better. Like, you know, I think all of us get to know you a little bit just from listening to the podcast, but it's it's really great to just be able to have these
0: conversations. And thank you so much. Oh, well, thank you. And, you know, just for your candor and your wisdom and your generosity and your time for being on the show. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Witchlit is a production of Thousand Volt Press and is edited by Julian Rashke. Our intro music is Cosmic Glow by Andrew Kay and our outro music is Voices by Alexander Shinankar. Transcripts and all our previous episodes are available at witchlitpod.com, and you can follow us on Instagram and threads at witchlitpod. Please help other witches find us by leaving a rating or review wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for listening to and reading Witchlit.